So I am so excited that this day has finally come. Like I'm, I wish I could hug you just to express my gratitude. But Colleen, how are you? <laughs> that is a big question. But I am all the better for being on a call with you, Zah. Um, you always make me um, think about things and feel good about the future. Oh, that is so sweet. That is really, really kind. So officially, welcome to Future Readiness with Zah. This is a, a platform that um, we, we in the past and will continue in the future to just invite people who are large-spirited and super kind and super smart, and they're doing the best in the world to just move humanity forward in whichever shape and form. Um, so you join, of course, a caliber of people who are just like you, who continue to just serve as motivation and inspiration for me because the world can be a mess. So it just felt, it felt important to create a community where we could just gather and speak to ways in which we can just turn the bits that are turnable into stuff that we can work and live with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you introduce yourself? Because to me, you've now become the the lady I met at a dinner almost four years ago, who's become a buddy, who's connected me to Niven. Niven's connected me to seven other people. So you, you've just become this, this clue and heart and connector that I'm so grateful to have mm. added to my very tight tribe. So how would you officially introduce yourself? Mm. I mean, it's a question many people don't like. How do you tell me about yourself? I'm like, well, I don't know. So you tell, you tell me and our listeners and viewers about it. How do you introduce Colleen? So, Zah, I'm going to actually introduce my alter ego first before I introduce me, um, because of what you've just said, um, which kind of I knew that I love, um, and you've just affirmed that. But my alter ego is I would love to be a matchmaker, and I think I would have been a very successful one. I just love connecting people and I love connecting to people um, because I, I have seen um, the power of questions or when people are open to explore certain things and, um, and, then, and also not just explore for their own interests, but explore to try to do something, but know there's another piece of the puzzle uh, out there. And so that's really um, my alter ego. And I think it is a bit related to how I would describe myself. Um, I'm the managing director of Rios Partners, the Africa office. I'm actually the outgoing MD. Uh, I only hold this title for another couple of months. And um, I'm a co-founder of Rios. And Rios uh, was set up 15 years ago. It's a global organization that uh, works with groups who don't like or trust each other, but have to work together to address the world's uh, difficult problems. So um, what that means is that I spend a lot of my time facilitating groups and um, working through differences and mistrust. And um, one of the methods that I've found to be quite effective to do that is scenario planning. So we have a particular methodology we call transformative scenario planning, uh, which is intentionally bringing um, a sort of whole systems team together to think about the future. And whole systems mean people that sit on the edges of a particular problematic situation, as well as in the middle um, to think about uh, possible futures. So um, that's what I do as a craft. Um, I'm also a mother and a wife and a friend and a fierce South African. My identity has been very formed by growing up in this country. Um, and I think I do 
uh, why I do what I do is is needing to deal with a lot of those wounds, uh, which still exist. Um, and so I think I work at a, a systems level and a interpersonal level and, and also at a leadership level, at a personal level. Um, is that enough, Zah, about no, me? No, what do you mean is that enough? It is joyful because it's bringing together all these many lanes. I think it's Audrey Lord who actually said that um, we don't have the benefit, of course she was speaking about um, black feminists at the time, that we don't have the benefit of living single-issue lives and how you describe yourself, or at least how you introduce yourself, speaks to this understanding that our lives and our identities are quite intersectional, right? So other people, being a mother would be the primary identity marker. Uh, for you, being a connector is a primary identity marker. And it is, I really, really think you, you are spot on. I don't know whether you'd have made millions uh, matchmaking people. I can tell you, though, that you would have shifted the amount of compassion and care that exists in the world because not only do you connect people, but you connect people from the level of heart, you know, not from the level of what is a possible transaction that can happen here. It is what is the possible a connection that can happen here. So that's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful skill. And I wonder if you've thought of it that way because what you do in the professional realm is an extension of your alter ego's superpowers. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, we, uh, we've we all probably been through many personality assessments and um, 360 leadership reviews. And, and, and so it's interesting to hear the feedback from others. And how I'm making sense of it um, for myself is to think about it in these three realms of head, heart, and hands. And uh, the work of of Rios, um, you know, you're often in your head trying to solve these issues. Uh, and underneath, as you say, Zah, like underneath, what sits underneath that intention of trying to solve these, these um, seemingly intractable issues, they can be quite hopeless, uh, whether it's climate or GBV or um, economic e equality or inequality. It's, you just feel like you're moving further and further away from a positive outcome. But underneath it sits, a, I think, um, a sort of a truth um, that is driven by the heart of, of, of trying to find a collective space where everybody has a, a place at the table, a, a place in the sun, however you want to define it. And, um, th yeah, that heart impulse is very strong. I, I, um, for me, it feels like it's a, a, an impulse of connection. Um, and that drives a lot of what I do. But equally, you know, the head is quite, um, I mean, in our professional world, it is, it is definitely the most dominant. But I also want to speak about the hands because the hands for me is just the implementation, the action. And that is a large part of who I am. I don't think things through to the end. I just um, start. Um, and I'm very thankful for that impulse. Um, and it is in some ways quite suited to our methodology and the work that we do, which is iterative. It's like, let's try something, let's learn from it, and let's try better or change. Um, and so my colleagues say I, I move very fast and I'm, I'm quite action-oriented, um, and I think that's the hands sort of impulse in me. Um, and, you know, the shadow side of that is just moving through things too quickly uh, and the heart helps you to pull back, you know, just like, hold on, what's really going on here? 
um, and to feel what's going on um, before just trying to solve the problem by acting. So, yeah, those three things are, I always check with myself. Are they in balance? Um, and, for example, just before this um, interview, it's been a very hectic week, and I just took myself outside for like five minutes and looked at something beautiful, and I was just like, okay, this is who you are and what you are, not your emails, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's those moments of just catching yourself in these three levels. And it's a wonderful thing how you describe it because firstly you've spoken about just how you create uh, the spine to your existence. So there's the head, heart and, and hands, but also how you you can get yourself back. Because I know for me that um, when I'm out of flow and I'm out of sync, nothing magical happens. Like my, my thought process just gets clouded. Uh, my creativity shrinks, literally shrinks to the size of a, of a peanut or a raisin. And learning, I think, as we as we have evolved as women in leadership, because please don't forget that there's a there's a very different experience for a man in leadership uh, than it is for a woman in leadership. So the ways in which we are experiencing leadership as as people who identify as female is very nuanced and and brings with it its own complexity and its own challenges, particularly with stereotypes around if you're female, you should be nurturing, you should be hugging people in the workplace. So when when your heart is subservient to your head, then people say, oh, she's not a caring leader. But when your head is subservient to your heart, then you, Colleen, are suffering because the level of care is also affected. It doesn't make sense. Like, where am, I, am I just projecting yeah. pain? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I... Um... It's, you know, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that because um, I feel like every moment that presents itself where you need to exercise leadership, you've got to ask yourself, where am I going to act from? Uh, is it from my heart? Is it from my head? My first response is often from my heart. So, like, I feel um, I empathize with the situation. And, and then I have to just check myself like how do I do this in service of what is being asked of me not not how do I do this as a woman or how do I do this as um, um, uh, another identity but really what's what will best serve the situation but it's still me <laughs> and so those are kind of micro movements all the time um, and you know I work in a, a, a I work with groups that are intentionally very different. Um, the individuals there are often misinterpreting each other. And I work with a team within Rios that's very diverse um, in race, gender, age, um, across the board. And so we are always checking each other, you know. Um, firstly, firstly, checking what we mean when we talk to each other and secondly, calling each other in or out. Um, and so, I, you know, I think the the challenge of leadership is to be who you are, but also to check yourself. And the the checking yourself takes takes a few moments, and sometimes it takes an apology, and sometimes it takes a change, and sometimes it says like, "Hold on, I want to I want to come back to that because my first response wasn't actually the one that's needed here." Um, I don't know if that's making any sense, but I'm I'm no, finding that. No, no, it's making a lot of sense because firstly, I just wanted to explain what does checking in mean? Because no, calling in because you're saying because I'm familiar with the idea of 
calling someone out, but what does calling in mean in your in the realm of your everyday existence? Yeah. So sometimes when um, you are um, at odds with someone, you have a different opinion, or somebody has triggered you in any way, uh, you um, have a response to that, and sometimes that response is calling out, which is, "Hey, that's not okay." Um, calling in for me is, um, gosh, I've noticed that that didn't land well for me or I'm not responding well to something somebody has said or I don't understand why they are responding in the way that they are. And calling in is a conversation. It's like, can we just try to understand each other? Um, and so we have a lot of calling in conversations in Rios. Um, and, and in fact, I, you know, that's my my mantra, let's call in, please. Let's not just make assumptions and call out. Um, I mean, it's important to call out from time to time, but I think it's a very discerning act, calling out. And we can get into that. Um, but um, that's what calling in is, in my language. That is, and, and it's so fantastic. Also, because if you think about the the culture in which we live now, if you look at social media and conversations around the cancel culture, right, which is about mm. calling out, and it's often intended as pointing out defections in another person. And there's a lot of blame that's associated with calling out. So I'm refreshed to hear you speak about calling in because that feels a lot more healing and restorative um, because it says, let's come back to the things that unite us. Whereas calling out seems to be attending only to the things that divide us. Does it make sense? Yeah. And, you know, calling in, is, uh, in my experience, is um, it's not easy because it's time-consuming. Um, you have to have the conditions right. So you have to – you can't say, hey, I'm, like, let's have a conversation about this when you haven't sort of worked out what's going on inside you with a very uncomfortable situation often. Um, and it, your impulse is, is to um, call out. And that's how we live in the world and, and it's how we make judgments and they're important to, they're important for us to navigate our way through what's right and wrong. Um, and so it's, it's almost like this counterintuitive calling in because you're like, I really don't want to do this. I'm, I'm not liking what's going on between us. Um, but this is important enough for me. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be somebody that you're in close relationship with, but it's important enough for me to try to understand and for the situation to try to understand what's going on here. This could be a learning opportunity. And I often go into those conversations with a knot in my stomach, like, oh, I'm nervous about it. And so you've got to balance that with some courage. You know, you've just got to say, okay, it's, I don't want to do this, but I, I am going to do this. Um, and sometimes I go into those conversations with real curiosity. Like, actually, I want to learn from this. Now I've really upset someone and um, or they've upset me and um, I, want to, I want to clean it up. Um, and that, that that sort of curiosity and cleaning up energy comes much more from uh, in, in in stronger relationships. You know, when you when there's much more to gain from fixing it than from not. Um, yeah, and it's um, it, it it really is resolved in one conversation, which is also why it's hard because uh, inevitably other things come up. It's it it can you you got to manage it carefully and you got to decide when do you call in and when do you call out and when do you just like let things be imperfect for a while and trust that they'll sort themselves out. <laughs> but yeah. also not to be attached to an outcome, right? Because I think particularly in 
in leadership or even in teams, there's very little success you can have if you walk into a conversation with a defined outcome to which you're already attached, because then you're only just going to try and steer the conversation to where you want it to go versus where the conversation feels naturally like it might flow. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is where, um, this is where, you know, our line of work helps because you, you, you've figured out those, those um, processes in conversation that help open up. Um, and so like just checking in. Uh, so that's, a, that's another buzzword, but just allowing people to start a conversation by sharing where they're at personally and how they're coming into the call or coming into the conversation. That's one, one start. And then instead of, as you say, asking a leading question, there's like, there's a noticing question or there's a noticing process. What is actually, what are we noticing is going on here before we jump to opinions or what, sh- what we should do? And it's like then from what are we noticing, uh, what, you know, what's new here that I didn't notice? And so, like, you just open up learning opportunities all the time when, you, when, you, when you're quite um, disciplined about the process of a conversation. And um, so, so, so talk to me about um, earlier on you were saying, that your your organization brings people together oftentimes where there's a very high trust efficiency. How might mm. how might leaders who are listening because even I think the skills also would work in our relationships at home, in our personal relationships. How do we work from a place of mistrust to a place where at least there's enough improvement and consensus, I guess that's the question. How do we create consensus when the when the starting blocks are just about mistrust? Yeah. So I think the first, there are a few sort of myth busters. The, the first myth to bust is that you need to agree. Um, you don't need to agree on everything when there's mistrust. Um, in fact, it's very liberating to create trust to name what you disagree on. Um, and, and that's the noticing bit, you know. Um, and, like, this is important to me, and, and this is my interest in this particular issue or uh, situation where we have to collaborate. Um, and, and by wording and, and, you know, putting language to what's important to you, uh, that's a level of honesty that does create trust, even if it's very different to somebody else. And of course, you need to set up. Um, uh, you have to set up a container for a process or a conversation when there is mistrust. It's not just about bringing people into the room and having everybody have it out. Like that really works. So it's about um, what are we trying to do here together? So what do we agree on, and what do we disagree on? What are the things that might be opportunities for us to collaborate? And then let's try to. Um, lower that um, that sort of waterline on the iceberg to reveal a little bit more about why we think these things are important to each other. Because mistrust is you've made up a story about someone else um, and how terrible they are and how um, uh, they're contributing to this issue in, in such a detrimental way. That's the story of creating mistrust. So you don't trust government and you don't trust um, extractive industries and you don't trust... I mean, all the baddies, you know, we can say. Left-handed people. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm being uh, a bit provocative here because those are often the big, the big institutions that people point fingers at. Um, and once you 
once you get a sense of why what is important to those actors or individuals and why it, why that issue is important and why they are addressing that issue in the way that they are, you don't have to agree with that, but you can understand it. And it is often in that sort of noticing of what's important to each other that the what might not be visible from the beginning, some kind of common uh, issue that is important to everyone reveals itself. Um, and 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 when you are convening a group of people to solve an issue, whether it's land reform or police reform or food security or GBV, these are all issues we work in, um, the convener also has a particular point of view. So they might frame the issue in a way that isn't important to somebody else and then go, why doesn't so-and-so want to be part of the conversation? So we often start the process of building trust by saying we don't know what the problem is exactly. We just know there's a problematic situation. And then you have people name the problem and why it's important to them and what is important to them. And it's in that naming that sometimes a reframe happens. Like, actually, this isn't the problem we're trying to solve together. This is. And um, then you can work towards something that you share an interest in. Um, and so we say in collaboration, my colleague Adam Gahan has written a book about this collaborating with the enemy, that an important principle for building trust is to be in conflict and collaboration at the same time. You, you, you've got to acknowledge that there are things that you're not going to agree on. Um, wow. So, wow. yeah, let me stop there. No, but it sounds really, it sounds really um, tricky because, so, for example, if you're thinking about um, an organization where there are, and let's use BEE as an example because many people have said, particularly in this country, that, no, but why must I include black participants when my father and my forefathers sweated to start this company? So in this sort of setting where there's the mistrust, the why must I give it away because I've worked for it and you've got the black person saying, but, yeah, you had a system that was in favor of your forefathers, so I too am entitled to this level of participation. So already you've got that tension. So I'm interested in in how you can balance conflict and collaboration because that feels like a a third muscle that needs to be developed. Yeah. So, I mean, in that particular instance, you have given two examples of individual stories. And what what we try to do, it's important that those individual interests are and, and stories are expressed. But in any situation, we we use what we call a systems lens, which is what are we trying to change in the system? Not what are we trying to change for individuals, but what is what needs to what what is the hypothesis? So let's just I'm going to name it that that because of um, apartheid and because of structural inequality, white people have benefited more from the context than black people. So we live in a highly unequal society that's racialized. And we know in highly unequal societies that are racialized, societies can't progress. I mean, there's no place in the world where that reality lives. So the hypothesis is we have to create, we have to, we have to, we have to narrow that divide and we have to create more um, equal opportunities for everyone, which means that the, some people have to move faster into opportunities than others for that to happen. Now, that is a systemic view. 
And a group has to say, this is what we, this is our hypothesis, this is what we want. Like we want a system that looks like this and it needs to move from this to this. And then you've got to work with the dilemmas of the individuals within that system. And you've got to keep that intention of the system in the front, but not at the cost of your own interests, you know? So that's the, that's the really hard part. Like, what am I willing to let go of? And what am I, what is really important to me? So let's just use the, the protagonist you mentioned, the white business owner. There, there might be something there, like I'm willing to let go of, I don't know, um, ownership or um, um, needing to be the boss or earn the most or whatever else. But I, I'm, it's really important to me to be key to the identity of this organization because this is what I've worked for and what I want to do. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm making this up, but I'm just saying what, what's, what do I hold on to and what do I let go of within the purpose of what you're trying to change in the system? And so you're working at multiple levels in this. And, I mean, I, I'm, as I'm listening to myself sharing this with you, I don't have the answers. <laughs> so I'm just telling you how you would approach the methodology because this is a this is a real perennial challenge in our country at the moment and it just it it feels like we we come at it from different angles and we make some progress and then things slip back into these um quite um immovable places um so i you know my view on it is you just got to keep going and you got to keep going and you got to keep trying different things but and I agree with you because part of part of what we're dealing with here in a country like South Africa is there is a huge trust uh, deficit between and, and it, on some level it's race, sometimes it's gender, sometimes it's class, sometimes it's just economic positioning. I mean, we're dealing now with a real issue around load shedding, right? And I was just thinking, if Colleen and her team had to go and sit with the president and his cabinet, like. How might you even get people to to see the same thing? Because if, if you've got one minister who's advocating for an energy creating process that is holding back, that's holding the country at ransom, how do you move forward from that? If you've got a president who feels the tension between the leader of being a leader of a party and being a president of a country, how do you create some level of of of, of consensus? Because we, the citizens, feel like we're being neglected. Uh, as these these fights and these battles are happening around us, so I'm just wondering what what you would tell them if you were given an, an opportunity to just say, okay, please help us get through this divide. Mm. Mm. Gosh, I um, uh, I'm going to give you an answer, but I just want to say I don't have the answer. <laughs> I know you will come after hearing this podcast, so you'd better have the answer ready in two weeks. <laughs> but um, what what I found, so just to do a little bit of a detour to the answer, what I and we have found to be sometimes more effective is not to address the challenge um, not to try to fix the problem directly okay there's lots of people trying to fix the problem directly so you know there's I won't even go into it I know everybody's on it (laughs) trying to fix this problem directly Um, but to say to to rather try to zoom out a bit and say 
what is the um, what is the system? We might choose to call it the country or the economy. Let's call it the economy just to keep it a little bit contained. What is, what is happening to the economy at the moment, if we choose to, to look at it through that lens? Or what is happening to um, citizens um, at the moment? And what are some of the... Uh, let's try to notice what's happening. And so um, this is the conversation I would have. What is happening here? And so you would... If we just use the economy, I mean, it's obvious certain industries are struggling more than others. People are um, not as productive as they need to be. Um, uh, learning is slowing down in schools and, and universities and, and colleges, etc. Um, so, you know, all of this has, um, has a, a significant impact. So if you look at it, if you zoom out, like the impact on the system, then to say, where do we think we might be able to influence the system within the control that we have? And this is like, instead of going, okay, let's fix ESCOM, you might try to address it with what we call a lever, a leverage. Something, there's really good collaboration, for example, potentially in the education sector. And the education sector can collaborate with pockets of, um, you, you know, a power supply, and it might be well, whatever, you know, or change certain policy incentives. And and I wouldn't, you know, it, it, this is the, the um, Rios approach. Is, you, so you look at it not necessarily directly to address the, the problem as it is manifesting directly. Um, you, you, you zoom out and you look for where, how is the problem manifesting and are there opportunities to more innovatively address that. And let's try to, lots of things at the same time and compare our results and learn very quickly. Like, wow, we're actually making progress here and we're not here. So let's reprioritize and focus and scale and invest and whatever else here. Um, so Rios and, and I, we don't come in to fix a short-term problem. We come in to shift how relationships work so that a particular system can work better. And, and so I think this is the dilemma between crisis and long-term change or system change. Like, we're going to move from crisis to crisis, and there are things that happen in moments of crisis that you can kind of either fix or not. But what, what ultimately I and we are trying to do is set up the conditions for the system to work better, uh, for relationships to work better, for institutions to find ways and institutional structures that they can coexist, even though the interests are different. Because you've got to collaborate, and you've got to you, you, you've got different interests. So yeah, and I, mean, I, I love I love that challenge because for leaders who are listening, uh, the conversation is always going to be about um, how do you elevate your gaze right from the crisis to the relationship? Because crisis is very short term, like you're saying, mm-hmm. we're fighting a fire and we're dousing it out now. But the relationship means we have to create conditions for the connection between the two, for the key players or the multiple players to thrive. And that's a big challenge. I mean, at the moment, you've got leaders concerned about bringing people to work, right? And this is a tension that, that we are seeing even at the campus at which I teach because it's the, we now want you back on campus and people are saying, but 
why do you want me back in a building? If you want me back in a building because you're paying for the lights and water, that's not a good argument. If you want me back in the building because you think our social glue is affected by distance, perhaps you've got some logic there. If you want me back in the building because you think my productivity suffered during the lockdown, perhaps you've got some logic. But employers are really, really struggling with articulating why they want people back at work. And it yeah. makes no sense. So, so I guess a CEO calls you and says, Colleen, please come help me. 40% of my staff yeah. performers don't want to come back to the building. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. Yes, yeah. of course. And I mean, this is a really classic example of different interests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and finding what the middle ground is um, and what the shared interest is. Um, and it's not like we need to be... Um, salespeople of relationship, <laughs> like relationship is most important. We have to keep the relationship glue going. It, I, I don't think it's, it's that way around. I think it is bringing, um, let's say we, we bring a whole systems team together in that situation. So let's bring some people who are advocates for staying at home and, and, and don't want to come to campus and those that do and um, uh, facility managers and whoever else. Um, and, 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 you know, people that are looking at this from very different perspectives and have very different views about it. And then let's notice like what is going on and what are people's interests and why? And then we might find, and we, I'm pretty sure we are going to find a, um, an acknowledgement that a number of things are important to everyone. And so if these things are important to everybody, then what does the reality look like? And the reality in the new world is probably not we want you back on campus for every lecture. It's probably we want you back on campus for these things because this is important where you are together and we will design stuff where you can work from home for this um, and, and, and some kind of new world. And the space, the actual building that you do pay light and water for, that space is going to change um, and, and it will become a different kind of space. Um, and, and that's the innovation of it all. Um, and so that's what I would do. And I think that's the only, I mean, I don't want to get dogmatic about anything, but in this reality of like these two ends of the spectrum, um, around trying to bring people back to work, um, I think that is going to be the inevitable future. Um, and I think every, every individual knows uh, and acknowledges the importance of relationships. So it's not for anybody to sell is for you to find what is important to me where I need to be in relationship. Um, and that's, you know, th- th- that will be an inevitable, um, I think, outcome, as, as, as will um, an acknowledgement that I'm actually quite productive on my own, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, it is an interesting case study, this one. And I'm, I'm always fascinated because in my conversation with Niven, to whom, of course, you, you, um, you introduced me. We're having a conversation about the, like the dynamic that, that happens when you are interviewing for a job and you've got the potential employer saying to you, uh, why should we hire you? And she was starting to think about what are the potential questions you can also be asking because it's also a dating session, right? You also are trying mm. to decide whether you want to be like these people or even you want to work with these people. So this question of um, will I be allowed 
uh, to, to will I have the freedom to work the way I work, but still deliver to our agreed contract? And people are struggling with that. So I'm, I'm really, really fascinated in the number of um, leaders who listen to this and think, rather than be forceful about it and say, you will come back to work because that's in your contract, maybe it's mm-hmm. time to find somebody who can help us bridge this divide in a way mm-hmm. that, that uplifts the complete system as opposed to reinforce my own authority. Do you know what I mean? Because it takes bravery yeah. as well as a leader to say, let's call for help. Yeah. And if I had to go back to what I shared beforehand about a more indirect way of addressing a problematic situation that is presenting itself in the moment, it's a real opportunity to um, to zoom out and say, what do we, what do we actually want? <laughs> We're in this new world, so let's not just look at do I come back to the office or not. Like, what, 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 do we, what do we want for this company or for this campus or um, uh, as, a, uh, as a staff or as a student body or, or whatever? Who, who do we want to be and how do we want to be? And I think, you know, then it becomes a much more interesting and inviting conversation for people than, and you can acknowledge, like we've got some serious, um, you know, um, uh, stuck issues that we're dealing with, including do we come into the office or not? But there are other stuck issues too, I'm sure. Um, and so let's put that into this bigger question. And um, yeah, what you're trying to do in, in, in building trust and collaboration is you're trying to frame a conversation that matters to everyone. And you're trying to frame a conversation that brings in enough diversity that something else can emerge than just your own opinion. Um, and so, and it, and it's like people love it often beyond the difficult parts of being in conflict, the the innovation and they're like, wow, let's try and work on this together. Or in, you know, anybody, I, I feel like groups love to create something new together, um, and and so that's what we're trying to do when things are are hard and stuck. It's an it's an it's a it's I I firstly I'm thinking it must be really really fascinating being your child. Because I'm, I'm trying to understand, <laughs> I'm trying to understand how I'm having a conversation about. I need to have my curfew hours extended by two hours, please. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a little personal story. I mean, I'm actually not the best facilitator as a, as a parent. Something else kicks in there, a dogma. But one thing that I am quite proud of. Um, so one of my children, I've got two teenagers, and one was. Um, having a really hard time towards the end of lockdown and um, just being, he was 15 at the time. He's now 16. Just also just what comes with being a, a 15 year old um, and really unhappy and grumpy and like everything doesn't like his current situation and doesn't like being stuck in his room and all of these other things. And he said, he said, Mom, I really want to go. I, 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 and he's quite a smart guy. Like, I really want to go and, and finish school in another country. I'm going to get a scholarship and I'm going to go. And I said, well, first of all, this is where the dogma kicks in. But I didn't say it like this, like you're definitely not leaving home. <laughs> and, um, and, and I, you know, I, I used my own, I had to dig deep. And I was like, okay, what is another way of looking at this? So I, I just encouraged him to go and ask around, like, what are opportunities to go and, and be educated differently for a period of time? 
and go and ask your school and just go and ask around. And there are things called exchange programs. His school didn't have one at the time. And it took him a year and he asked around and he got some teachers excited and a particular teacher reached out to a teacher they knew in Brazil and the school just said, oh, we'd love to have him. Please come. And uh, he's just returned from three months in oh, Brazil. Um, all just following conversations, you know, and he's just, I mean, long may it last, but, you know, he's, he's, he's got agency. He's made it happen himself. And, you know, he's now he's very worldly and he knows everything, but it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that confidence, you know. <laughs> so it can happen at multiple levels, but it's, yeah, it's reframing. Everything's about reframing. <laughs> but also, it's about the, uh, celebrating the possibility of creating something new, right? So yeah. I, I love that. And it's such an encouraging story because I think part of what also happens, whether you're a leader or a parent, where, wherever there's a power dynamic, there may be. Uh, an obsession with dogma that no, that's not going to happen, as opposed to just saying to somebody, if this is really important enough to you, go explore the possibilities and I'll support an argument you mm. present that is sound. Wow, wow. So yeah. you see, I do want to be a, a, to be parented by you. Look at that. Look at that. But but I guess uh, well, actually, what, being a parent, being a parent is much harder than being a facilitator. Of- Really? Don't trust like, why? Because one has a full-time job. No, I just, you never know what you're doing. Um, in parent, That's my experience anyway. Um, yeah. But you, you lead from your heart and you hope for the best, I guess. Yeah, and you try to drink your own Kool-Aid, you know. Just trust that if you ask the right questions and you... Um, and, and you and you create some boundary like that. I mean, here's another important and another important principle across parenting, leadership, and working with groups in conflict. What what isn't this? <laughs> this isn't the following. You know, we're not going to address these issues. We're not going to fix X. We're not going to fix Y. So, like the boundary is really important to agree together. Um, you know, I, I can think of. Um, you know, we worked for a year on, on land reform, and um, there was um, there was an, a juncture. Uh, I mean, this was this is. 2015, uh, 2014, 2015, where we made a decision not to involve political parties. We involved government officials, um, but political parties at the time were making a lot of noise about land reform and had researched it and whatever else. And as we moved into the process, we just realized that we've got, we're not going to necessarily make any more progress by bringing all the political parties together, which is quite a big, um, it was a humbling experience. Like we had to forfeit something. Like th- those are big centers of power. Um, and we chose to do it without them. Um, and we chose to only focus on land reform in South Africa, even though we've got a lot to learn from our neighboring countries. So we chose that boundary because it re- already within that boundary, it is so complex um, to fix, you know. And so I, I think boundaries and, and, and hardline dogmas have a place as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in our industry, we say that um, boundaries can be liberating because there's nothing more. What's the phrase? Give me the freedom of a tight brief. Because if you keep it really tightly defined, it compels you to innovate. It compels you to work with what you have to create something new. So I can, I can, I can understand that. So before I let you go, you see, I love talking to you. I could talk to you for years, but you have a job to get to. 
Um, before I let you go, I just just um, help us think through, if you can, what are the what are the what's the one or two things that you you may want to offer leaders to put in their toolkit as we all deal with this thing called future readiness or future fitness? Like, what what do you really think are the, are the skills that people in leadership positions should possess? so that they're able to thrive beyond this moment, beyond moments of mistrust, beyond moments of, of judgment, of inequality, of questioning, of, of all of these other challenges that you mm. see. Yeah. Cesar, if I may, I feel so ill-equipped to answer that question. So I cannot answer it for myself. What's important to me? Um, because I think, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the world is, as we know, um, is is changing fast and and with huge amounts of uncertainty. So, I I for me, what's important is um, in my toolbox that I try to exercise is that um, in situations that present themselves in new ways to you, big challenges, there's no answer. Um, so ask questions. I know this sounds like such a cliche, but just, you know, back to my son's story, like just go and ask, see what is out there and, and, and who is out there. And so when you are feeling uh, like you don't, your, your, your business as usual model doesn't work, ask. Um, that's a big one. And try to ask questions to people who you what we what I call our weak ties, people who are in your sort of realm, but you don't know very well. Because I think we are all, I mean, back to the opening lines of this interview, we are all connected. And everybody's within two or three asks of being connected. And they have a piece of the puzzle for your particular challenge. So ask Get connected, get your networks connected, not with everyone. I, I think there's probably two or three new people in a particular situation. Um, and stay really close with your team. I mean, that has been my um, my mantra is just um, we are facing an unknown world and we can only do it together. And uh, we've got to, um, um, in some ways, keep making it up and reviewing and learning on our progress. And, you know, the thing that I've personally been writing about and struggling with for years is when we're faced with these big challenges and we don't make progress on them, even this, you know, the bigger South African project, um, you, you, get, uh, you, you get overwhelmed with hopelessness and, and you kind of just want to opt out and go into your little cave and stay there and make your world a lot smaller or leave, um, and and the I think the real uh, what, what I have found to be um, to be very empowering is to own hopelessness, to say this is overwhelming and we're not making any progress on it, and to find hope that they can they can both exist, and hope might not be in the big things like you know the changing stats of employment, hope is in often in the things that you can see and touch. And so I feel like hope is in this is in the direct relational and hopelessness is in the bigger. And so you, you know it's 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 trying to um, shift a system through connecting parts of it in that hope. 
Um, and so who are your hope, who are who your, who your hope connectors? And they're your teams and individuals that you're reaching out to. And another big hope connector is to set goals. I think it's important not to just try to make it up each week, <laughs> but to, to have, to have ideas about the future. Um, and I mean, this is where scenario planning is interesting because they're not specific goals. They're stories about what might happen. And if you can imagine a story of a world in which you are, that you live in and are in your organization, you know, how do you enable that? And how do you avoid the world that you don't want to be in? So, um, so there's some strategy in there, there's team in there. Um, and, and there's experimentation. Uh, I like radical experimentation because it's like all the time experiment and learn and, and change. Um, and, and, and then I think there's, um, you know, you probably have guests that speak a lot to this, but what's the, individual practice of leadership. Um, and yeah, there's like finding what it is that, that, that gives you your mojo and everybody's is different. You know, mine is, you know, I'm, mine's pretty straightforward. I just need a walk in the morning, every morning. I need to look at something beautiful. I need to um, connect to people that are important to me. I need to plan my week. I need to plan my year. I need to have structured and um, I need to have, structured and informal time with my team. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's those little things that you just like, these are, this is, this is my mojo and this is who I am. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I try to do. And I think it's this, um, the cycle of life of, you know, like being really ambitious and, um, um, and embracing about the big challenges and what you're capable of doing. And then having the, humility of hopelessness of like i'm i'm not making any progress and things are sliding backwards and how you choose to bring both of those into like face them with clear eyes they they're both they're both true um and and it's about how you sort of leverage both of them um wow. yeah that is, that is so rich i mean because you you've touched on on several several things that are real, real skills or tools and muscles that people can develop. Uh, when you're speaking about um, looking for hope igniters, it reminds me of the one time I was driving and next to me is a guy in a like, like really, really beat up VW, but his windows are open and he's pumping music. So I said to him, you sound very happy. Where are you going? He says, no, I'm psyching myself up. I'm going to an interview and I'm feeling very nervous. And then I oh. said to him, well, what's your favorite song? He says, the song that I'm playing now is my mother's favorite song. Um, uh, and she's with me, so I'm bringing her into the interview with me. I just, I, I wanted to go. Uh, so, so. Uh, don't <sighs> this is, and that so, is our country's mojo, isn't it? Hey, we just know how to tap into, I don't know, I, I, I so resonates that story. It's such a beautiful thing to just say, when your own stuff doesn't feel like it's going right, Look around you. Somebody will give you reason to try again, yeah. to keep believing, to keep your heart open, you know, to because there is enough woundedness in our country that we bring into our own relationships. I, 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 I mean, just a quick story. Um, I was at a, um, a shopping mall a couple of months ago and, and I walked up to one of those machines to pay for my parking. And the machine said, no, you haven't been here long enough, so it's free. It's fantastic. But I already had a 10 rand note out in my hand. So I turned to the woman behind me and I said, I'm not paying for parking. Can you be my act of kindness and I'll pay for your parking? 
you know, she looked me straight in the eye and she said, I don't need your money. And completely missed my intention. Complete. Yeah. But when I walked away, I literally said to myself, and I wept, I, I, I cried very easily, but I wept for our country. I wept for the society we've become. We've become so wounded that we can't even recognize and receive kindness. It was just... Mm. It, so, so yes, we do live in this country that has these polarized existences and these polarized experiences. But like you, I wake up every day and I reach for sunshine. I reach for joy. I reach for the things that move us forward because hopelessness for me feels like staring at the back of the moon. And that's not necessarily one to look at all the time so yeah so thank you for, for 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 making me think again but also for just engaging with such honesty thank you oh it's, it's i can't believe we've been talking for an hour it always just feels it feels like too short it feels way too short but thank you thank you so much i wish you and uh, the people you care about and the people who care about you continued clarity and courage and and we'll speak again of course outside of this environment but for today i thank you so 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 much for your time and we'll speak again soon thank you Zah, and uh, it was wonderful always from now on full circle will be called future readiness with Zah, and we'll still have those thoughts expanding conversations and the streams of encouragement that you enjoy if you already subscribed to Full Circle with Zah, you are automatically subscribed to Future Readiness with Zah. And you can continue to listen to all the conversations on the podcast platform of your choice. But also let me know if there are any specific topics or guests you would like us to host. Enjoy, like and share. And until the very next time, I wish you clarity and courage.